And it used to be sweatpants. And then there was a period of maybe two years where I was dressing very, I was dressing very like metro and wearing all sorts of sequins and another side of my personality that came out when I was engaged to somebody who was a PR expert. And I was kind of thinking about that side of what I was doing. Single again, so I'm back to the, uh, back to the black t-shirt and sweatpants. Hi, I'm Tim. Welcome to We're Only Human. This is a podcast celebrating the resiliency of the human spirit by exploring journeys of people from all walks of life. There are often little nuggets of wisdom we can find in another person's story that we can then apply to our own lives. We're not perfect. We're not alone. We're only human. Today I'm joined by Greg Spiro, who is a son, a brother, uh, pianist and leader of the jazz band Spirit Fingers. Uh, he's also toured with Halsey and composed music for all sorts of TV, film, and other projects. And as you were mentioning earlier, Greg, before we started recording, uh, we've known each other for quite some time. Um, has it? Yeah, I, I, I. So here's what I did. You and I have exchanged way too many emails over the years, especially when we were working together back in the day. So I found the first time we emailed, it was the summer of 2007. And here, correct me if I'm wrong, here's how I remember it. So I get out of school and I'm doing web development at the time. And I, this is what's in my mind. I think it's accurate. And I hop on Craigslist because where else would you find web development work? <laughs> and I think you were working You were working on all sorts of websites or clients. And I think you had an ad. And I think we connected on there. And then we started working together, building websites. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, that, that, that is it. I do remember. 2007 was when I graduated from University of Illinois in Champaign. And um, I had built up my my web development company before that. And, and I, as I was getting to the end of that, I got to the point where I was totally overwhelmed and had way too many clients and needed help. So I put out an ad on Craigslist. I was like, please, other developers come help me out. Um, and you were, I, th- I guess you were one of the people who responded. I didn't realize that it was from that ad that, that you, that you came into my life. I think it was. Yeah. Cause I, I was on Craigslist at the time looking for work, you know, fresh college graduate. I mean, 2007 to a different world back then. And, uh, I, I don't know. It's kind of ironic hearing you say that you were so overwhelmed with work. You had to find help, which is amazing. And then I was on the opposite end of the spectrum. I, I was trying to find some work period. So I, it was fate that we met. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I love that. And I mean, you speak to one of the things that I've, that I has played out over and over again in my life that one of the skills I've had is sort of enterprising and creating creating demand for something and then like being overwhelmed by that thing. And uh, so then I always have to get help. And that's the that's been one of the big the biggest learning experiences for me have come from when I've had help and I've had to then interact with people who are helping me, which is the hardest thing in the world. Like it, because there's so many dynamics and I mean, it, it, it's actually simpler in the context that you and I were doing it because I was paying you for for developing and had a, my clients paying me an hourly rate. Like, let's—I think it was like—I don't know—I I would charge like eighty bucks an hour and pay out sixty bucks an hour, so I made twenty bucks an hour for the people that I hired or something like that, right? So that that was simple and cut and dry, and I was able to outsource work and and 
do all that. But then as I, as I grew after that and got into different scenarios, like the tiny room series, you know, when I, when I eventually kicked the whole business addiction and, and went back fully into music and took up that other addiction, um, <laughs> and, and then started enterprising in that direction. It actually was a lot more difficult because there's so many other social dynamics and ego dynamics to bands and people who are working on a, on a like creative series, like a video series where everybody's invested in emotionally into it. And, you know, the, the business world was actually easier than the arts world at that point. Yeah, I would imagine too in the arts world, there's so much more competition or at least on like a personal level. You, you mentioned that you, uh, you know, asking or you, you would get overwhelmed creating different things and then getting to a point where you're overwhelmed and need help and you had to ask for help. Is that something like you were okay doing and you felt naturally like that's the next step? Or were you like, okay, I have to ask for help and I don't want to because why shouldn't I be able to do this myself? No, no, I was excited to do it. I, I wanted to get rid of as much of the work off my plate as possible. And you also have to remember, this is this was not my passion. I'm a jazz pianist. This was a period of my life where I was convinced I was not going to be able to make a living on music and I needed to do other things to make a living. And one of the things, and that actually stems largely from my grandpa's influence because my parents were very open in terms of, of like, you know, do whatever you want, whatever. They were like, we don't really know. So you figure it out, but, um, <laughs> that's fair. But my grand, my grandpa was adamant. He was like, listen, you got to meet a nice Jewish girl and have a, have a nice family and like find a job in something economical, like being a stockbroker or a business person or whatever, or a doctor. And I mean, I remember these conversations with him and he was like, you know, think about this stuff because it's going to be a lot like you'll probably be a lot happier if you take this path is what he thought. I don't know if he would have been right or not. I, I don't think he was right in the end. It, um, you know, having taken the other path that, that he did not suggest, I, I can't imagine my life having gone in uh, down the path of just doing something that, that allowed me to have more of a traditional living. That's interesting. I didn't realize that at the time we had met because especially when we met, I met you in the context of technology and web development and building businesses and helping grow businesses and clients and all this stuff. And, you know, as I got to know you, I got to know the music side of you and I could tell that's where your passion lied. Cause I'm very similar, like, you know, having different slices of my life, some that are, you know, there to help support my life and some that are creative outlets and things. And I, I saw that with you. I, I didn't realize though that you you've always been a musician, you know, prior to that. And you were kind of on like a, not a break, but you were trying to figure it out. That's, and especially looking back now, I mean, look at what you've accomplished. I, like, like I texted you Monday night. I didn't realize you were on Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. And, you know, I'm watching the video uh, when you're playing with Halsey in January of 18. And Greg, you're right there. I mean, in the, I mean, it's, there's no, <laughs> it's you on the stage in studio one, was it one H? And yeah, whatever it's called. Yeah. And I was like, geez, Louise. I mean, that's amazing. I, I, oh my gosh, I have to ask about this. So how, first of all, there's so much between when you're working with me and clients in 20 to 2007, how can we say 2007, but then we say 2017 side note. <laughs> um, 2007, it's the aughts. Yeah. But then, so 
How did you end up, though, with Halsey? I mean, this is a... And first of all, I don't mean this in a like, how did you of all people, Greg? No, I mean, you're, of course, you're the one, you know, doing amazing work like this. But I'm just curious, you know, like, you don't just one day end up playing on stage with a pop star at Saturday Night Live. Like that doesn't, there's a lot of work involved and a lot of, you know, journey. So I'm curious, how how did you end up there? You know, man, I was reflecting, I was reflecting on this last night when I was talking to my cousin about certain experiences. No, actually that was, it was, it was a friend who I was talking to um, about certain experiences in my life. And I've had this happen multiple times in my life where I don't know why, but something very, very, very unlikely seems to happen. And I don't know exactly what I contribute to that unlikely thing happening other than some basic principles that I have always functioned on to some degree, but um, have also refined as I've gotten older and, and come to understand more as I've gotten older. Um, and the, the Halsey thing, I can talk about the cause and effect that led, that led to it, but a lot of it's luck. Um, it's because, you know, there, there, if you think about the gravity of a situation like that, how many, in terms of success, I feel like in terms of success for a working pianist, right? I sort of, hit that level. I hit success in that, in that realm. Like people who are growing up in music school or they want to be a pianist or whatever, once they're playing on stage solo in front of 15,000 people and they're improvising and they're playing with a great singer and doing duets and, and there are people screaming and, and flailing at their, like at the harmonic developments, which I didn't think pop art, pop audiences were capable of doing, but I found gradually as I gained more freedom in the Halsey project that they were. And that's actually what led to the tiny room project. But um, doing that, it's like, okay, I've made it to some degree. Yeah. I mean, is, is that what you would define? You mentioned like you, def- you achieve success as a working penis. Is that success like simply just getting paid to do what you love? Yes. I mean, I was getting paid very well to do what I love and getting tons of attention for it from all these different media sources, sponsorships from major instrument companies, um, a demand from all sorts of other pop artists. I can't tell you how many other jobs I got offered during, during the time I was with Halsey. Um, and, uh, and also like the gratitude from, you know, you want to be recognized for, for, for playing piano if you're a pianist it's one of those ego things right like you want the world to feel like okay he's he's good <laughs> you know and and i got that so i got i got the money the notoriety um the the like the, the internal recognition from the business community and the fans but i gave it all up entirely i i quit and i mean it was it was it was a soft quit they i i pissed them off so much that they were they were like you know you can, the, the, the deal was I could stay if I like compromised a lot of my laurels. And so I decided, no, you know, let's take this as a, as a, as a parting, as a, as a decent parting situation. And we love each other. We, we both respect the talent in the other's party, but sure. it's like, I couldn't keep, I couldn't compromise certain things about myself and my artistic path in order to keep participating in that. So I decided to move on and give up that entire world. And I have not taken, I've been offered some pop tours since then too, but I've, I've gave them up. 
I mean, I, I turned him down. Um, was this truly a case of like creative differences where just like your vision for what your creative future looks like just differs from what they're, you know, what, what they were offering? No, it wasn't just creative differences because there were creative differences from the beginning. We, um, I mean, I knew it wasn't my, it wasn't, she said, she even said that to me. She recognized it because one of the, one of the things, one of the laurels, I guess, the, the values that I hold is being unbridledly honest. And I'm still working on that in some areas of my life, um, particularly with people that I want to like me and that I want to impress. But the, but, cause I grew up, it's sort of like the nice guy syndrome, right? And I grew up being kind of a nice guy and, and, over the past five years have learned to be sometimes the antithesis of that, which people say I'm a total asshole now sometimes, but it's so much better than trying to say the things to make people like you. Um, and I, and I already had that sort of instilled in me at the time. So when I, when we started, like, um, she even said to me once, she was like, it's funny that I'm the only one who actually wants to be playing this music. When she talked to the, when she was talking to the band, um, like everybody else was there as hired people because they, I mean, we loved the music. It's great music and she is a great artist, but it wasn't our passion. My passion was jazz. Everybody knew that. I, I made him take a fucking piano on tour so that I could practice like in the off hours. I had, there's a photo of me outside of the tour bus on one of the earlier tours in the fall where I'm wearing gloves because it's so cold outside. And, uh, and, and I have the, the, the wire strung back into the tour bus so it can get powers. And, and I'm practicing for hours outside of the tour bus, like with like leaves around. You can tell it's, it's, it's a funny photo. Some people have said it was in, it's indicative of some things that they, of, of like the, the work ethic. That's another one of the laurels. Um, what were you practicing? Were you practicing for the tour or were you practicing just anything? Rudiments. Um, and if, in fact, I didn't have the, the understanding of music that I have, that I understand, that I have now, if I did, I probably would have practiced different things. But at the time it was the same routine. I made sure to do a two hour routine of scales, exercises, Hannon, um, Beringer. I don't actually know if it's Beringer or Beringer in the, this part, because there is Beringer, but I'm pretty sure these exercises are from a composer named Beringer. Um, and then some classical pieces that I had learned earlier that I made sure to, to keep doing every day to, to re, reinstill that. Cause you lose it quickly. Like, I mean, even Mozart said that if he doesn't practice for a day, he notices if he doesn't practice for two days, um, his, his, uh, uh, like close people, like the orchestra notices. If he doesn't practice for three days, the audience notices. Um, That's so. Interesting. And, and, and I knew that this wasn't the end all for me. I, I, I didn't want to be a 50 year old sideman for a pop artist, you know, like. Was that what you were having visions of? Like, as you were getting into this thinking? It wasn't that I was having visions of that because I knew I wouldn't stay that long. I know enough about myself to, to know that I'll jump ship if, if the shit is too, is going, is sailing towards the continent that I don't want to be on. You know, I'll, I'll jump out and yeah. swim in the ocean until I find the, find the next boat or try to build my own boat while I'm swimming, which is sort of what I'm doing now, which is a little silly. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that, that must have been hard though. Even, I mean, you know, even if you're not, if you know this is not 
my passion for the future or, you know, this isn't my long-term play. That had to have been a hell of an experience. So, I mean, even when you decided this is going to be it, there ha- I imagine there had to be some piece of you that was going to miss that. Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, I missed the hell out of it. Making that level of, of income regularly, first of all, like, Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's, it's one of those things that, I mean, there may be like, like 20 or 30 pianists in the world who are in that position in their life. Like, or not, and maybe not in their life, at, at simultaneously. Like at this time, there may be 20 or 30 bands that pay that well and have that level of exposure and that level of camaraderie too. I mean, I loved those guys. Like, I still love them. The, and they're so hardworking. The, the management team, um, and the, then the music director, Vinny, like, and, and Nate, the drummer, they're all super talented in their own right of what they do. That's why they were there. So it was such a great tribe to be a part of. And, and it was also like paying great. And I was getting a ton of exposure. And if I had done that for three more years, I, I would have been being paid even more and like, you know, would have been even more successful in that trajectory. But that's just, that wasn't my trajectory. So I, I decided I would start over essentially. And starting over. So you were working. Um, so tell me the, the spirit fingers. Um, it was pre- what was it called before? I never could pronounce Polyrhythmic. Polyrhythmic. That's why we changed the name is because nobody could fucking pronounce it. Can I oh, swear okay. on your podcast? Yes. Can I swear on your podcast, by the way? Well, yeah, you just did. Why not? <laughs> There's no rules in the land of podcasting. Um, spirit fingers. I love the name, but so this is, uh, here's, here's the sense I get. This is kind of your passion project. Like this is, it's not your, you know, your thesis, but this is like what you want to focus on. And, but did this come about after Halsey or was this something? Cause I know you, I mean, I was watching you back when you were in Chicago. Uh, what was it Andy's? Yeah, you no, videotaped us. You came into, in, in a close yeah, up too. Yeah, the jazz club. Yeah, you made so, some, I mean, you made the first videos that I have of myself that are from like oh, really? 2010. The, the on, wow, like <laughs> both the, um, from close up two and then from the weekly piano thing. It was like you were doing those. Yeah, I was. I saw that you still have some of those on your weekly piano YouTube. Yeah, close up too. So I remember you had. I mean, you were always in a jazz band from from what I understand. I mean, you were always. Playing I started gigs playing and, in my dad's blues band when I was fourteen years old. Fourteen years old. Were they playing in bars and stuff? Yeah, they were. It was smoky bars. I still love the smell of, of cigarette smoke because of that. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, but when when I am in an area where people are smoking, it's like. You know, I'm the same way. I, I will never smoke and I, I have never smoked, but I love the smell of cigarette smoke, which I think, Greg, is actually worse for us. Like secondhand smoke is going to, you know. Well, I don't I don't get exposed to it that often. So, But I was, yeah, I, I was 14 years old. I still have visions of it because it was so exciting for me as a 14 year old setting up. We set up a, I remember we set up a. Was that a freshman in high school? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So you're set, you're in a bar setting up. Yeah, we were, we were in a bar and we would set up, I, I have a vision in my mind of setting up a wooden plank on a pool table so we weren't standing directly on the pool table <laughs> and setting up a, this key, my dad's keyboard rig, which is an organ and a, and whatever, um, to a little, to this Leslie speaker sitting there and my, and so that was the organ rig and then on the other side of the, of the, of the bar there'd be the, the piano rig with another, with a different piano and my dad and I would switch off. One of us would play organ and one of us would play piano. Oh my God. That must have been the most fun 
And I mean, you, from what I know, you, you, I mean, your dad and you and your family, you seem to have a very close knit family and your dad and you have a great relationship. So lucky. Yeah, we have. Yeah. So, I mean, doing that with your dad must have been like the, what, what would be cooler? I can't think of a cooler thing. You know what I mean? Than playing with your musician dad, who we should mention is also a, a very great musician and. So I mean, playing in the bar with him, on, I, I just I, I'm smiling because as a, a father myself, if if I, if that was my situation and, and I had that sort of thing, you know, being musicians, I forgot you're a dad, man. That's awesome. I man, I can't wait to be a father one day. I got to meet the right girl first, but I, I'm so excited for fatherhood at some point in my life. That's the best. I mean, like, like I said, and look at this. You're going to be like your dad. You're going to be bringing you know your son or daughter to the bar at 14 and, and playing gigs. I'm going to be obsessed, man. It's going to be problematic. <laughs> I'm going to be so obsessed with my kids. So, 14, were you playing music uh, earlier on than that with your family? Like, Because your mom is a... Is your mom a pianist and your dad's also a musician? My mom's a pianist, too. She's watching now, too. And she and I have this argument. I, I, I feel like I took lessons from her for maybe like two years when I was younger because I remember learning the Moonlight Sonata um, and... Uh, and then some other like little pieces. But for the most part, I, I don't think I was willing to actually take lessons. I wasn't willing to like sit down at the piano with her other than for a couple years of my, of my childhood because I just was not, I, I've always had this weird thing where I only want to do what I want to do. And I'm still that way. It's really fucked up. Like it causes a lot like, of problems. Like you don't want to, you don't want to, take the direction of a teacher you just want to kind of experiment and play and figure it out yeah that's one of the that and it manifests in that way as a kid like i'm i I loved figuring stuff out on the piano and my dad would play stuff and i'd be like hey dad what are you doing and he would show me i remember there's this earlier thing and i can actually i've I've got my piano hooked up here so so i could play play It, it was called dance and it was like just some really simple blues thing that was like goes on so like it's a blues form but that's like you know little simple things like that and i still remember i haven't played that in 20 years but i still remember it and because it was so like ingrained in my in my mind yeah. from 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 the uh from the experiences with my parents so i would ask them about stuff and if my mom was playing something really pretty i would ask her i think i'd ask her to well i would always hear her play Debussy, and that was that was beyond me until college because i didn't i didn't actually take formal lessons until college other than that that tiny bit with my mom um and then when i was in college i started learning some of the stuff that my mom would play that i would always hear her like like claire de lune the you know that one i feel like i've heard it it's just one of those like beautiful snippets that make you smile yeah yeah is i mean wc is the best wc ravel um chopin so in college you're you you went to college for musical training, right? Or I mean, for music. Well, half the colleges I applied to were in computer science. Really? And half so were in music. Know, that kind of half and half. Yeah, it, I was I was so torn, man. I didn't know what what I would do because I loved music so much. But again, and Jesse Hansen commented, "Don't blame it on Bob." But he was the only force that my grandpa was the only force that I had really telling me like, you should not do this music thing like that. Cause he saw my parents do it and saw how hard it was for them. My dad, he, he was, I mean, my dad had 
a moderate level of success in music when he was my age. Like he was touring in stadiums, opening for, I think, REO Speedwagon or something like that with his band. I think it might have been Kevin Lee and the Lonesome City Kings or Mesa. And he was part of some bands that had some success. And Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But it never became financially stable enough for him to sustain our family. And, and eventually, he took on other jobs like in the tech world and, and uh, like so that he could support us in the way that he wanted to support us, which I am there, – there, there's the – a depth of gratitude that I live with every single day knowing that. And I think that one of the reasons that I work so hard because I know what my dad gave up in order to give me what I have. So your, your grandpa then is, was just, I mean, he's being practical based on what he knew and what he saw. So, I mean, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Man, I love my grandpa so much. He's still alive. He's 92 years old now. We just had his birthday the other day. Is he, when, when we used to do weekly piano, I used to come over to your grandpa's house. Yeah. And that, I remember he would be sleeping or something and we would go in the other room and, and you would, we would make the, the piano. He probably be sleeping. <laughs> he took a lot of naps. My, yeah, my sure. grandma was there too. 92. RIP. Wow. My, my, my grandma Mimi, I, I, I lived there for several years after college um, at their, at their house while I saved money and which I eventually used to move to LA. And um, those are also some of the experiences that made me who I am today. Like living with, with living with old people is something I would recommend kids do at some, for some extended period of their life, because it gives you such a perspective of, of everything in life. It, it gives you a perspective of what's important to like, I, I watched as my grandparent, as my grandparents' friends were passing away and the, and the experiences they had with those people and the, um, and, and having heart to hearts with my grandma and grandpa afterwards and seeing the strength in my grandpa and seeing the love in my grandma and, and the compassion of people who have lived that long. Um, I, like the, those, those years that I spent at their house while I was just doing it for the purpose of saving money, I was making enough to have an apartment somewhere, but, but I, I was, that's one of the other things that I, for whatever reason, have done my whole life is live as far below my means as I possibly can. Um, and and that's it's, a, it's an experience that I wouldn't give up for the world. I mean, partially because my grandma's not with us anymore. And I feel so grateful to have had those experiences with her. Oh, yeah. How nice is that? And then also, you know, my grandpa, my grandpa's with us, but he's not all there now he's like still he's still happy and he's still kicking but you know i can't have the depth of intellectual conversation and play chess with him and all the things that i did when i was living at his house and it's an amazing experience too because i mean what a gift that they gave you and you being able to spend that time with them and get to know them that you might not you know otherwise but then also the reverse the gift you gave to them you know that time they got to spend with you especially your grandma it was the biggest mutual gift that i it's probably the the most important mutual gift of my life other than my being born by my parents um is have, having that time with my with my grandparents and and not only that like the 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 things that keep me going now like the values that I hold in terms of personal responsibility and um, and dealing with the hard shit in a certain way. It's like my grandpa did that in a way that, that only that generation did. I think it got softened generation by generation 
like in the baby boomer era, it got softened a little bit. And in the millennial, whatever you call people now that I'm a part of, but I'm like at the tip of the millennial era, I think I'm 35. People got so nice and so soft and so like, so, uh, blamey people like it's, it's like more and more. So from my grandpa's generation to where we are now, like putting the, putting the, the responsibility of the bad outside and the responsibility of the good inside it, it's, it's this terrible epidemic of thought in society right now that I believe is ever present in, and, and has gotten worse generation after generation. My grandpa was the antithesis of that. Like, I remember one time I was sitting at, I was sitting at, it, this is a very tiny example, but it's exemplary of it. I was sitting at, uh, the, the brunch table. We would have brunch every family also, the family values and keeping family tight knit. Like we would have, because of my grandma mostly, but then my grandpa supported it, obviously, um, not uh, partially because he was the breadwinner, but, um, my, my grandma was the one who took the initiative to have the family together every Sunday, like extended family and just to hang out and have brunch. Oh, that's so much fun. It's like so simple, but what families do that now? Like, yeah. like extended cousins and everybody coming together and being so comfortable and, and like nothing you being with a group of people where you know nothing you could say or do will make them not love you and that sort of experience it's like those experiences that my grandparents curated they were intrinsic of they were indicative of their values that they held from a certain generation and i mean my grandma got married to my grandpa my i think my grandpa was was 20 two or 23 my grandma was 19 and they spent their entire life together until my grandma died and i remember her making us my grandma making us fresh squeezed orange juice which is like now we're all just drinking this sugar water um and then and holding the family together and the 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 example i was going to tell you was i was taking driving lessons i was sitting at at the and i had missed a lesson or something. I forgot about it. And I was sitting at the table and my mom was like, yeah, I forgot to remind him about the, the lesson. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'll just blame that on my mom for this one. And my grandpa was like, Hey, no, <laughs> you do not blame that on your mom. You missed your fucking driving lesson. I think he swore a little bit or something like that. I, I get, he, he never swore, but I think in that time he said something that made it really stick. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay, you're right. I like, you know, I mean, however, however young I was, I was like, yeah, I, I have to take responsibility for that. And, but that, that sort of situation came up in all sorts of other things. And then he also took responsibility for, for giving me these experiences, like took me to watch the sunrise in the morning and just these, the, took me to the museum yeah, for the overnight sleepovers at the museum. Like they, they, I'll stop talking about my grandpa, but it's just, you can see it's such a deep part of my. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's fantastic. I, I think that's amazing, and it, it shows so much of you know where you learned so much and, and derived so much of what you value. I think that's fantastic. And and I'm and a lot of my family like thinks I'm just the worst thing ever right now because I have some of those values that are from earlier generations. And you know there are things that that are um, like that are negative about those generations, right? Like racism was was a lot more prevalent at that point. And yes, like everybody wants to get rid of racism now. Um, it, and, and like 
I'm, I'm very progressive in terms of that, that's sort of the obvious social shit, right? Like we need to function yeah. as a world mm-hmm. and as a human society, all people are equal and all that. But then the things like the other elements that I talk about with my close family that are indicative of my grandpa's mindset, it's like, like there's such heavy disagreements between the current generation and like two generations ago on some issues that are very important and how people deal with them. And, and like, so, you know, some of, some of it, you can't even like, it's so popular to have this one viewpoint that you can't even really go into it because it just ends up being a total shit show. And people are so wrapped up in their own personal viewpoints that they, they, they can't, they can't open their minds to thoughtfulness about a subject in a genuine way. I, I love that you, and to me, you, you always have stood for just this idea of like unity and peace and, you know, we're all one collective, whatever it is. Um, and I've always admired that about you, but I, I feel that I feel your kind of presence in that sense uh, so much more now during this COVID time where I feel like it's really brought that out that we really are, you know, all, all together in on this. So, well, the things that bring us together historically are war and famine. The, like the, the, the worst things in history are the things that make us the most cohesive as a human race. Because we have something to fight against. It's like we're all so dumb in the way that we function as, as a species in day to day life. Like for, throughout the majority of our history, is I and and it's because of evolution. It's because of the way that because we're animals that that have certain tendencies, and a lot of those tendencies no longer serve us. Um, and 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 so like you know we have people who are there's a combination of not taking personal responsibility for anything. Um, cause that's something we're sort of programmed to do if we can. And that, and then, um, like blaming on the other, cause that's something we're sort of programmed to do as we can. And it goes back to tribes when like the, the, the other tribe was the one that would kill you and the internal tribe was the one that would keep you safe. And like, you know, the, and you were also probably going to starve in the first place because for the majority of human history, we were like just gathering berries and mushrooms and trying to kill a rabbit so that we could have sustenance but um the things that that make us like realize that we have to come together as a world and not say like other other i don't like you i don't like you is like when we are all threatened by an external source just wait till aliens come to earth man i was gonna say it's like independence day with bill pullman that's gonna be the ultimate when we all no, have this to is together. A, this is independence day this is an alien the covid virus the covid 19 the coronavirus it, it's it's like an internal alien it's a new species that is yeah. attacking our species that is like eating us from the inside out and and it, so we're like okay yeah we need to fight against this other species and the only way we can do it is by protecting ourselves in the ways that we know how by, by coming, by coming together. But it's also pointing a finger at some of the, some of the terrible aspects of keep, of, of, of humanity too. And, you know, there, it, it's such a two-sided argument, like the things to do to fight against this, this virus and to get over it. It's, it's such a, it's such a double-edged, either way you take it, there's a double-edged sword. Because there's no right way and there's no, there's no, like, people are going to die and we're going to have the economy tanked and everything's going to suck for a period of time. So, like, how, what are you going to, how are you going to balance it? And, you know, there are valid arguments to either side of both the, like, super 
liberal version of like we all come together and we quarantine and don't let anybody die but then the super conservative of like actually people need to die and they're going to die anyway and like numbers are skewed in different ways and you're like quarantining people to the point where they are eventually going to starve and rebel like so there, there are these two but that's also something that i try to do in in every facet of when i decide to have an opinion on something which i try to not have an opinion on most things is like really dig into the two sides of an argument when an argument exists. And that's something, that's why so many people just despise me because <laughs> because I actually look at both sides of an argument. So if you're wrapped up in one side of an argument to the point yeah. where you can't see the validity of the other side of the argument, which is like 95% of people, then you're going to think somebody who sees both sides of the argument is just the worst thing ever. Which is terrible because I, I agree with you. I think that's the way to approach it. E- even if you do have an opinion and if you do have you know, a side that you're on. I think it's so important to understand and empathize where the other side is coming from or, you know, it's so dangerous to just be so divisive and not at least understand where people are coming from on the other side. You know, like it's... Well, by the nature of politics and media, the only thing that we are exposed to is divisiveness on a mass scale. Yeah. Because there are two sides and those two sides are self... um, what do you call it? Self-perpetuating at this point, like you, to not have divisive inputs, you need to have genuine one-on-one conversations with somebody who is willing to look beyond their bias. And you're not going to get that from the government. You're not going to get that from the media. Yeah. You know, you, I'm looking at your black t-shirt before we started recording, we were talking about uh, your black t-shirt uh, uniform and how you have a bunch of them, but you had referenced, um, you know, uh, a, t- a time in the past being engaged and, you know, kind of learning from that. And which I, I remembered, uh, I was looking when we were texting the other day, somehow I scroll up my text and we were about four years ago, we were talking about something. Um, and I was like, oh, how, how, how's life? And you're like, oh, I, you know, just moved down to Atlanta, got engaged. I was like, oh, congrats. Awesome. Uh, and then like, we didn't really talk much after that. And I, and then you just mentioned it before. So, you know, and obviously you just mentioned you're single. So I, I'm just a little curious. Uh, there's a little chapter there that obviously closed, um, which I, I, you know, my condolences to the, that chapter closing, although maybe it was for the better. Um, but it sounds like you, you found love and then maybe, maybe not yet. Oh yeah. I found the, the most intoxicating and most amazing love I've ever experienced in my life, which is why I asked asked this love to marry me after three months of knowing her. Oh my goodness. That's exciting. Oh, it's a great story, man. If you want to write a romance novel, like just look at my, oh, yeah. just look at my, my history. We were, uh, we, were, we met while I was on tour with Halsey play, playing an arena opening for the weekend. And, um, and, and we just, we be, became completely infatuated with each other. And, and I flew her out to, um, uh, where was it? flew her to to Paris and bought a ring and asked her to marry me on stage in front of 3,000 screaming fans. This was... No way! Yeah, this was before we were big in Europe. So, we had... We were playing um, La La Chigal, I think it was. It was was some... some, Like, three or 4,000 cap venue that was sold out in Paris and... And yeah, and Esther to marry me on stage with the crowd chanting. There's video of it somewhere, man. It was so great. Man, I spent all my money on an engagement ring. I'd saved up ton, a ton of money playing with Halsey and blew all of it on the ring. Like, like you wouldn't even believe. Um, and 
Man. Uh, it, and then it didn't like, we just, we didn't know each other well enough and, and we jumped in too quickly. That's it. And, and over the course of a year, we tried to make it work. And eventually I sort of realized this is just not going to work. Um, and, you know, and then called it. It was sort of, and then we sort of spent another year after that circling each other's orbits and seeing if there was any way to make it work. But it just, it just didn't. It wasn't the right, it wasn't the right, it was so close to the right scenario, but it was one of those scenarios that I knew if I had, at, at, I had to make a judgment call at some point that it, like, cause I was, I'm getting, you know, every year I'm getting older and I do want to have a family one day. So I had to make a judgment call at some point, like, am I going to be happy in this given everything I've learned? And the answer in the end was no. So I moved on. Has that changed? Has that experience changed kind of how you approach, uh, I was going to say love, uh, but not love, but I mean, find, finding that someone like, has that kind of changed? Yeah. How you maybe approach? completely close off for several years. Like, <laughs> Oh really? Yeah. I mean, cause it was the most painful experience of my life too. You know, you give, you give your all, you give every little bit of your self and not to mention your finances and, and, but like your soul and, um, because you're so deeply in love and you want to make something work so badly and you plan out the rest of your life based on, based on a person. And, and then you realize that you made a mistake or I mean, I don't even know if it was a mistake. It was like, so those, those experience are, are, I wouldn't give it up really. I mean, I think I wouldn't give it up. It, it was probably, it was the most, probably the most painful experience of my life, but it also was the experience that made me open my eyes to, and, to so many aspects of myself and of my existence. And I mean, you know, she, Kristen is her name, Kristen Hart. She's a chocolatier in, in, in Atlanta and, and, uh, has a great chocolate company called Cacao Atlanta Chocolate Company. You know, I, I will love her for the rest of my life. Like you don't, you don't not love somebody that you go through that with, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, like, It's, 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 it's one of those things that I was transformed from the experience. And like other painful experiences I've had in my life, I think the most, the hardest and most painful things I've gone through in my life have resulted in the most growth, the most personal growth, the, the greatest understanding of myself and, and under, and, and also like the way that I live and the decisions that I make. When you go through a, a period where you prop your, you put all your eggs in one basket and that mm-hmm. basket gets dropped on the floor and shattered, it's a lot easier to make hard decisions later in life when you're like, you know, this is going to be really painful, but I need to do this. And I think that that's something that, it's not a thing that a lot of people say in my generation and younger than me, older than me sometimes, but my generation and younger, it's, I don't see people saying this is going to hurt like hell and this is going to be so fucking hard, but I'm going to just walk through this and do it. And you're not going to really live a very fulfilling and meaningful life if you're not able to do that. I love the way you phrase that. I, I so agree. And I don't, I feel like this, you know, speaking for you, it wasn't a mistake in my eyes because like you said, I mean, it's going to shape, it has shaped who you are and who you will be and it'll further refine 
you know, when you do find that someone, like you'll be that much more educated and that much more in tune with what it is you're looking for and, and how to be the best partner and all that. So yeah, there's also I mean, a high barrier to entry now. Oh yeah. But I mean, like you said, like, you know, had that not all happened the way it did, you know, maybe you would be, you know, less educated and less, you know, gr- further grown on your path toward wherever it is you end up. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that, that, and, and like you said, you know, whether you at the time realize it or not, but, you know, reflecting on it and realizing now that, I mean, for the first thing you realize, hell, you're pretty capable of going through some really hard times and, and surviving first of all, but then probably coming out stronger. So that's probably a pretty good feeling coming out of that. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, that's one of those things. And when I say the, the unlikely things that happen to somebody, like those are, those are the things that. I mean, that, that was with Halsey too, you know, I didn't, I didn't, every moment in Halsey, it wasn't like, like, yes, I love this. This is great. It was like, okay, this is something that I need to put my entire being into so that I can make something work in a way that it is better than everything else in the world. And, and I did that every day for three years and, in, and with having that mentality while getting on flights taking overnight layovers to different countries and like working on my laptop on the plane to design the sounds for the next show to try to make it better in the arena because it's a different arena type of arena that sounds going to be different in and like editing at sound check and, and learning different parts and making keyboard parts super complicated so that a I could practice on stage and b so that I could um play all the parts live because that was one of the one of the mentalities that we had in the band that I that I was like when we started I was like I want to do everything live I don't want to and this this was from Vinny's influence too we were like you know we don't want to um we don't we don't want to be one of those those bands that plays to a track that has the like I mean there there was a track but the track had like minimal stuff in it and I was playing mm-hmm. almost every aspect of it completely Live and, and to do that for three years when it's music that you, that is great, but it's not your heart and soul. Like that sort of that trudging through the muck and getting through to the other side too, you know. Um, even though it was glorious and, and I had amazing moments and, you know, was like while I was doing that, I was also on stage in front of 15,000 people every night for the last year that I was with Halsey. And for a piano player to be on stage in that way is not... It's something that I that I appreciate deeply. Like have I have a huge depth of appreciation for doing that. But you know, like being engaged to Kristen Hard is a rarity. Like she she's I mean she before me like she was dating someone who was a CEO owner of a giant hedge fund who had like many who was super super wealthy and like could just take care of her for the rest of her life if she wanted to go that direction. You know, like that. So like. For, for, for me to be in that situation, for anybody to be in that situation was a rarity. And for, for me to be in the situation with Halsey, by the way, Halsey was, I say it was luck because we started when she was tiny. Like the fact that she got that big was not something that we knew she was going to do. Like I almost didn't even take the gig when we started because of that. Oh, really? Cause I was going to say, did not did... because of that. Let me fix that. It wasn't, I, I wasn't trying to, I, I, I would have liked to be in a band that was that famous, but. I was not trying to do that as like, okay, I have to do this, you know? So yeah, 
you weren't trying to join a rocket ship. Yeah, it, it, but it turned out, it turned out to be a rocket ship that we all built piece by piece. I mean, I was a I was a wheel, I was a gear in a giant machine, and you know the fact that, they, that in fact when 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 they called me to audition for it. I, I was like, I don't really do auditions. <laughs> and, and he was like, well, you know, listen, just like make a video for me. I was going to say, how do you, how do you audition for like an act like that? Like, what, what does that even mean? I, I... She wasn't known yet. And they were trying to find somebody. It was Vinnie Farrow who was trying to find somebody who could play, who could do well playing her music and, and design all the sounds. And because I had a technical like background okay. with, with music. It's like a skill set they were looking for. And I was a pianist as well and could play the parts. It's like I, I fit that description um, just from him seeing my electronic stuff I had done. I had done something called like jazz dance or some stupid like dancey thing that I had put online before that. And I think he saw it and was like, oh, he can do electronic music and he's a badass pianist. So, okay, well, let's like give him a shot. But he looked, he, he looked all over LA and New York interviewing as many pianists as he could. Like literally anybody who would audition that he thought would... He, he auditioned and then he eventually was like, he offered it to me and I had to choose between that and this jobbing band I was in that was set to go and play internationally. And I was like, I almost picked the jobbing band because that seemed to be guaranteeing more. It, it paid more at the time. I mean, the Halsey gig paid very little at the time. and But something fell through with the jobbing band and I was like, yeah, fuck that. I'll just try this other thing and see if I can add value to the Halsey project. And then we quickly went on tour and I ended up getting rid of my apartment because of a neighbor who was not okay with me ever practicing um, to the point of slashing my tires because he heard me practicing. But... Oh, geez. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, welcome to LA, the West Hollywood baby. Did he at least like approach you about it first or was that the first reaction to that? He, I, I, he got, he had anger issues and, and, and got mad at me, but got it. He villainized me before he approached me about it and then eventually approached me about it. But by that time it was too late and he had, he had issues that he, he needed to blame his problems on somebody. And I ended up being that, being that person. Oh, okay. Um, and so then anytime he wouldn't even let me practice when he was away, out, like he wouldn't tell me when he was away so I could practice so like so he wouldn't hear it um so I needed to practice sometime and that and I didn't compromise I didn't say okay I'll just stop practicing because I had my Steinway grand grand baby grand piano in my apartment um and uh and because I wouldn't forego that he uh slashed my tires and that was when I called the landlord I was like I gotta move out and at the same time um I uh that was at the same time when the first Halsey tour started. So I got rid of my apartment and it ended up being a blessing because I was saving. I ended up not having an apartment for three years after that. I was just on the road. That's interesting. It did work. I, I love how you turn that into a blessing and, you know, a positive thing. I think that's, that's so true. Well, that's one of the things about life, right? Like anything can be a curse and a blessing or a wow. curse or a blessing, depending on how you look at it. Um, and I find more and more that the positive mentality, as long, the more of a positive mentality I keep and the more gratitude I keep in my heart, the more blessings come that come to me. And that actually, at that point, when that particular moment in time happened, there was a, um, I, I was doing a, a campaign. Uh, so I practice Buddhism through the SGI. It's Nichiren Buddhism and we chant the words Nam Yoho Renge Kyo and we do it. 
every morning and every night. And, and, and I was, I had started a campaign a few months before that called a Daimoku campaign where you chant for one thing for an hour a day every morning. And I had a friend coming over to support me. He wouldn't let me off the hook. He was like, I'm going to be there with you every morning. We're going to chant an hour. And my thing I was chanting for was appreciation. So it was a campaign for 100 days. And this is because Herbie Hancock told me I needed to do it. And I was like, fuck. Okay, if Herbie Hancock tells me I need to do something, I'm just going to go ahead and do it. <laughs> That's dedication, though. I mean, an hour. Yeah, so 100 days. I had a little check check mark for every day. Every morning, I would chant, chant for one hour for, for appreciation, just appreciation. And it was near the end of this campaign that I ended up getting called. It was during the campaign that I ended up being called to audition and near the end of the campaign where I asked, uh, was asked to go on tour and ended up the whole shit hit the fan with my apartment. I broke up with my girlfriend at the time. I was devastated, but moving on and um, it, the... Uh, it, and and it ended up being one of the greatest starting points of my life. Wow. I, I'm still thinking about an hour of meditation a day for, for 100 days straight. It just speaks to the... It, what I love about your your story and, and your drive is just that, that drive and that persistence. And maybe that's coming from your values from kind of the previous generations, but that, that ability and willingness and no fear to really work hard and work for it and understand that I have to put in the paces. I have to put in the hours. I have to put in the sweat and that whatever comes out of that is my manifestation. So I'm in control of this. So it's only going to happen if I work hard. I, I see that through everything you do and through you as a person and just kind of that your little meditation um, example there is a great example, I think, of that whole value. Well, yeah, it's personal responsibility. And don't get me wrong, there are things that affect us in this world. There are so many things that affect us from like what I'm born with, the if I like, you know, like the medical situations people have, people's ethnicity, like the, the there are, um, you know, like your friend group, your parents, your with the level of wealth you have when you were born. Like, there's so many things that affect you. But the only way, literally only way that one can can have a better life as opposed to a worse life is to take those things and say, okay, those are things I accept those things that I cannot control. And these are the things that I can control. So I'm going to do every fucking one of those things that I can control so that I can manifest the life that I want. And if you do that, you're ahead of like 99% of the people because most people are like, you know, 40% of the U.S. is obese. Why are you obese? Because you eat too much. Like, you know, and then you might, and then something happens like, pen. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't conditions like... And, and there's a spectrum, right? But the majority of people, it's not like, it's not like 40% of the U.S. has a pre-existing condition that makes them more obese than the, that same 40% in Thailand. Like, the, we, we, which has a lower poverty level, by the way. I mean, a lower poverty, a lower level of the lowest poverty level in Thailand, right? And, and less obesity, like. Sure. So. You know, that it, if, if, and, and America, America, I sound like a 
I sound like not me when I say that. Is that the United States of America, our, our system here <laughs> was founded. There's, lot, there's lots of America. <laughs> the United States of America was founded on, um, by the way, it's a Japanese thing. That's why, that's the reason I would say America. And the SGI, which is a Japanese organization, they always just call it America, but it's the United States of America. Um, oh, okay. It, it was founded on, uh, it, it, it was founded on the idea of personal responsibility in the first place. And that's why it's become the system that has given the world the greatest innovations that have made humanity to this level where we used to be at like this level and we made increments up to that level throughout our entire evolution. And we've made it such a gigantic leap now that we can like control the COVID virus to an extent. Whereas a hundred years ago, this a similar virus happened with actually less death rates and less spread rates. And it killed 5% of the entire population. Like now we can actually do something about it because we can communicate and organize and we're, and we we're, not more intelligent, but we're more capable. And it's because the inventions that have been made by people who took personal responsibility for their lives of, of, of every background, economic state, race, and ethnicity that, like, that, that took their own life into their own hands and built themselves up. Man, Greg, I could talk to you for hours. I really could. <laughs> we can keep going. I don't have I don't have a hard cutoff here. I know your podcast is only supposed to be an hour, but I'm having great conversations. So I'll keep going if you want to. Uh, honestly, it's funny. You know, you mentioned the podcast is supposed to be an hour. I never actually. It's not supposed to be anything. I just have kind of natural conversations with people. So you know, some some conversations are longer than others. I I'm curious. You know, with you know, a couple of years ago, you you um, left the Halsey tour, and, and you know, you're doing spirit fingers in, in, in the jazz. And I know you had the, the tiny room project where you're bringing in artists from all over and kind of doing different versions of their music. Um, what, what is like kind of the next chapter of your life look like? Like, what is it that you're, you're working toward now? You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm sort of, so one of my things that I have on my schedule for today, every morning I wake up and I do a whole routine which involves meditation and yoga and reading and journaling. And in the journal, I write my schedule for the day. One of the things that I have written for today is a thing called fear setting and goal setting. Fear setting, which is, might even be more important where you, you, you look at the things that you are afraid of happening in the future and the things that you're afraid of not happening in the future. And you like lay those out. Um, and then you look at like, okay, what can I do to avoid these things? How close am I to, to, to falling into these pits of terrible existence that are possible for me? Right. And, and how can I mitigate that and go around it and change and change what I'm doing right now so that I can, um, so that I can not do that. And, and one of the things that I am and the, and the, and then goal setting where you figure out your, your, your long-term goals. And I mean, I have long-term goals, but you like refine them. Um, and one of the things that I am worst at doing, one of the, my, one of my worst qualities is focus, um, and sticking to a schedule. <laughs> like every single day I make a schedule and every night I beat myself up for not following it, but at least it makes me closer to, to having stuck to that schedule. And, um, the, and, and so, I have to figure out my focus for the coming, for, for these coming, uh, months, really, and years, but, but really months because I've, I've started, I have several companies. One of them is Tiny Room, 
One of them is Spirit Fingers. It's actually, it's a corporation, Spirit Fingers LLC, and it owns the band and the material and all that. And I, for Tiny Room, I have investors and, and I've got a bunch of material and, and then there's Tiny Records, which is being started as a new company. And this, I have so much material recorded from Tiny Room that I need to release. And that's why I'm forming Tiny Records and we're forming a partnership with Ropadope Records and Vidya to, to oh, have fun. distribution chains. Um, and that's going to take some some of my time, but I also have some help. Like, well, I'm and I'm working on getting on getting more help with it, uh, as far as collaborators and then people that I can hire just for basic low hourly rates to do some of the the grunt work, um, and like inputting things into spreadsheets, right? Uh, so I'm I'm going to keep that moving and I'm going to keep that that growing the label and the, and the and monetizing the material that we've created over the past two years. And then there's the tiny room series, which we have our pilot. Now we, 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 we did, we did it as my own, like doing whatever I could with like minimal help and, and basic per, like sort of minimal production value for a couple of years and got some notoriety. Like now every, anywhere I go and tour in the world, musicians and artists know about Tiny Room and what it is. They also know about Weekly Piano, which is kind of funny because people actually know me as Weekly Piano because I don't put my name on it for the most part. Like now people are finally <laughs> awesome. finding out, like people are finally finding out who I am because I was finally like, fuck it. I'm just going to put my name on it. It was like, why, why not? But I was so insecure for so many years about my, my piano playing and, and about like the, um, the, just the low production value of the channel that I didn't put my name on it. And then I would go and tour in Europe and people would be like, Hey, you're a weekly piano. I'm like, ah, that is hilarious. That channel has been going for so long. <laughs> I know it's funny. I mean, I would even I I was at a Keith Jarrett concert. He was playing live at Carnegie Hall. I was at the Keith Jarrett concert, and sitting there, and somebody turns to me from I was sitting in like the third row, and somebody turns to me from the second row, right in front of me, and looks at me, and like turns back, and he looks at me again. He's like, "Excuse me, are are you Weekly Piano?" <laughs> like, oh my god, this thing has gotten too big. I need to put my fucking name on it. I don't know. It might have been fun if you had just gone under this like pseudonym. You know, like, even if you weren't insecure about it. <laughs> it's like the worst name ever. Weekly piano. Like, uh, well, I'm weak or I do it's it weekly. A, like, I, like, what? It's so funny because you, you started that probably just a couple years after YouTube came out, actually. And then, like, it's grown. But honestly, weekly piano is like the ultimate YouTube username, right? Like, it, it's so fitting that you would go to a concert and people know you as weekly piano. My 22-year-old self thinking, what am I going to call my username? Yeah. I also started a company called Weekly Websites at the time. I don't know if you remember that, but like... No, no, I don't know that one. It was when website technology was first coming out to where you could do them really quickly and, and you didn't have to code it. And so I was like, oh, maybe, you know, or One Week Website is what it was called. One Week Website, the worst fucking name ever. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I made flyers and, and put the flyers in the mailboxes of my local community so that people would call me and ask me to do their website for 500 bucks in a week. I love your hustle. That's what I've always loved too, is you got that. And I don't, you know, hustle, I think sometimes has like a negative connotation, but you have that, that positive, like you will do whatever it takes. You, you're not afraid of putting the flyers in the, you know, like that's awesome. Vince, Vince Wilburn, one of my friends who, uh, who runs the Miles Davis estate, he's like big guy, like, like powerful, strong dude who runs a big company. And whenever I hang out with him, he's like, like baby gangster. Like you're the you're the, you're the little <laughs> the little white Jewish gangster. 
Like, I'm not. But <laughs> oh, wow. It's really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I think you got the wrong idea. <laughs> you know? Um, but wait, oh, I think I, I totally circumvented a question that you asked. Um, but I don't remember what the question was now. We went off on a tangent. Oh, I don't remember either. I'm, <laughs> we did, but tangents are great. Tangents are, you know, that's that's the kind of conversation I love is where it's a natural conversation. And, uh, that, you know, that's what where humans do is we tell stories and we, we go off on tangents and tell other stories. And that's, to me, that's the best kind of content out there. That's why I love doing this sort of thing is... That's how you get to know people. Yeah, totally, totally. But that that's one of the things, if we take it back to like the core values that have kept me going and, and have created the biggest successes and the biggest failures of of my existence thus far, that's one of the things has been just like working. But the, the like we're working like crazy, like spending all of my waking moments working and whether that is, it could be self-care because that's also work. Like, I get up in the morning and I do not compromise the hour. I'll wake up as early as I need to in order to get one hour of self-care in, which is the journaling and reading, meditation, yoga, um, and affirmations. Um, but like, there's also, you know, if I, if I didn't have the, if I didn't have the value of, of like being uncompromising and always doing the thing that I kind of wanted to do, then I wouldn't be able to have that, that level of dedication to work. And actually that has come up in different scenarios where I've done things that I really didn't want to do. And I tried to make myself do them. And I just was the, I, I turned into a zombie. I like, I'm so excited about things I love. And when I'm doing something that I don't love, I like physiologically something happens. I, my joints start to creak and I start to walk like an old person and I start to get so tired. Like it's really weird it's amazing how our, our body speaks to us like that. Like, I feel like lately I've become so aware of this, but how the mind and the body truly are connected and like the body can physically change and communicate to reflect what the mind might be feeling. It's really fascinating. It tells us things. Yeah. I, that was one of the things that when my engagement was falling apart, that my body was telling me that something was seriously wrong was my hips started and I still have hip problems because of, because of it, but it was actually, it dates back to earlier. I, I, the reasons for it were probably ways I was treating my body beforehand, which was carelessly. I was doing the insanity workouts on pavement, like outside the tour bus for the whole Halsey thing, which was like high impact um, interval training. And uh, that was probably terrible for my body, but, but, but it was well, it was in the high stress moments when, when my engagement in my life at the time was falling apart that um i what that my hips started like just stop like it, it started getting so painful like to the point where i needed to start getting start getting treatments for it and i've never done drugs in in any significant way and i am terrified of opiates so i never took any painkillers for it i mean i won't even take a tylenol but like that was when my body started to fall apart and it's gotten so much better since then. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons that I exercise daily and, and keep that as a, as a steadfast part of, part of my life. Um, but the body will tell you when, when your life is not in the direction that it's supposed to be. Yeah, it's, it really does. It's amazing. I think that's one of the things that really 
you know, makes us human is that, that connection that is probably stronger within us than other, other species. I remember the question, by the way, you were asking what, what's, what, what is the coming? Oh yeah. What's next? I never actually answered that. (laughs) And I'm kind of excited (laughs) to answer it because I have some exciting things coming up. So aside from, 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 from starting the record label and, and distributing all this backlogged material through the record label, um, which has so many great artists who have come through tiny room and played and some other artists that I'm going to sign to the record label. Um, I am one of the big moments I'm having right now is I've had an idea for, for three years, a little over three years of how to monetize, how to monetize an artist's existence in a better way. And it's something that happened because I, I needed a system like this for the weekly piano channel. Cause I noticed that, that I had all these followers and people asking me questions, but I didn't really have a way to monetize that unless I like made a Kickstarter and had them contribute or if I charged a person individually. And I, you know, I don't want to talk about the nitty gritty of what the concept actually is on this because we're still working on the patent and I have one of the best patent lawyers in the world working on it. Um, and, and then Latham and Watkins, I, I don't know if, if, if the guy who's working on the patent would want me to say his name. So I'm not, but, um, but Latham and Watkins is the, is the, is the legal firm that's also helping me with all of the aspects of, of the incorporation we've incorporated and, and putting the patent through. And this is a company that has done this for billion dollar corporations, like led companies to billion to multi-billion dollar exits in the past. And so I've got a great team behind it and amazing, um, I've an amazing co-founder and, and, uh, an interface developer who's working on it with me and a great programmer now um, who is, who's working on it, who, who knows he might, he might end up being on track to be the uh, technical co-founder, but this is, it's turned from an idea three years ago into manifesting the interface with, with one partner about nine months ago to now we're like really moving forward and there's some investors looking at it um, in to, to take us to the next level so that we can get, go really hard and, and put out this app for artists like me and thousands of many thousands of other people who have channels that have like 25,000 followers or more, um, to, to monetize their channel in a way that nobody's been able to do yet. Nobody's thought of, nobody is, people have probably thought of it, but nobody's executed this yet. And it's going to be something that, that, it won't only help me um, monetize my channel, but it'll help everybody up to the major celebrity level take more control over the monetization of their own brand and their their own entity. And it will also be an entity that puts art money back into the pockets of artists, because we see there, there's a there's a gigantic there's a gigantic um, upset in the creative world because you have companies like YouTube and Spotify who are distributing all of the, this artist content, but you don't really see more so on the YouTube side than the Spotify side, I think, but, but because I've looked into these numbers, but you don't see this money actually going to the creatives who are making the content that these platforms are, are building these many billion dollar empires on. Yeah. It's very one-sided. It's very one-sided. And, and this, and as an artist myself, I know the system that I would want to use. And so I'm building a system that other artists, I, I'm pretty sure they're going to want to use this system. Like it's going to fill such a gigantic need in the marketplace 
which I know you're sort of a tech blog. So if your audience members um, are, are like tech people or investors or whatever and want to get involved, you know, hit me up. <laughs> I'm just starting this thing. Um, but but it, that, that might be where the majority of my daily time goes for a period of time um, in, the, in the coming months as we manifest this thing into the world because it's such a gigantic value proposition for the world. Oh, I'm so excited for all this, Greg. I, I love what you're doing and I, I love, you know, you're great. I'm so excited just to, to continue to see you progress and, and the impact. You know, you're someone who has such a great, I mean, you have a very positive impact, but you also have a large impact on, on everything, on the world, on people. And I think that's great. You know, someone with your talent and your expertise to to choose to use that in such a way is, you know, we need more of that. So thank you. And thank you for taking the time to do this today. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to, to all this you got going on. Thanks, man. This has been really nice. And it's been great to catch up with you. It's been... I don't know how many years since we've had a an actual conversation, but it feels like no time has passed. Thank you for listening to this episode of We're Only Human. Since you've reached the end of this episode, I would love for you to send me an email at we're only human two at gmail.com. That's we're only human two, the number two, at gmail.com. Send me an email and tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. Thanks.